0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 239, The New Aristocracy. Two episodes ago, we talked about Manuel's personality and the relationship he shared with various family members – like his cousin Andronicus, or his father's old friend, John Aksuk. In fact, I described a dinner scene, where those two nearly came to blows. The topic being discussed was whether Manuel was as good a general as his father John had been. I don't know which pot-stirring relative brought this up, but things turned nasty when John Aksuk argued, a little too convincingly, that Manuel was not yet fit to lace his father's boots. Andronicus, at this point Manawil's bestie, told the much older Aksuk to watch his step, and swords were drawn. The scene was particularly tense because Manoel's older brother Isaac was at the table, and the subtext was that Aksuk thought Isaac should have inherited his father's crown. The reason I'm reiterating that family squabble is to draw your attention to the scene itself. This dinner was happening on campaign in the Balkans, presumably in a fancy imperial tent where the leading men of the dynasty ate together often. This gathering of the great and the good is a Komnenian innovation. Do you remember me describing similar scenes with Basil II and his relatives? No, you don't. Pre-Manzikert, emperors often saw their male family members as threats and kept them away from military campaigns. But as soon as you start reading about Alexius Komnenos' campaigns, all his relatives are by his side. His brothers and nephews and brothers-in-law. Nicephorus Melisinos is there, and George Palaiologos, all sticking their oar in and having a say on how they should tackle Robert Giscard. It was quite jarring for me, having dealt with centuries of campaigns where no subordinates really get name-checked. At first I thought it was just Anna Comnini's style of writing, but now here we are, with Kinemus and Coniati's quite different historians, and they report the same thing. The Komnenoi made the conscious decision to take all their leading men on campaign and to make decisions, if not collectively, at least in one another's presence. This was a response to the endemic civil war, which had allowed the Turks to take control of the whole of Anatolia. Alexius and his family decided that the only way to stop the rot was to marry their way out of it, to unite their family to all the other leading families that they could, giving these outsiders a stake in the existing regime. This decision went hand-in-hand with a major reform to the honours system that had been so vital to Byzantium's survival. Under the old system, the emperor would hand out dozens and dozens of court titles with salaries attached. Some represented real jobs, some merely honorary positions, all carefully chosen to keep important men loyal to the crown. Now, new court titles were created and distributed to the extended imperial family. We talked about this way back in episode 198. The Komnenoi started using the Greek words for Augustus and Imperator, Sebastos and Autocrator, and combined and augmented them in various ways. So there was now a Sebastocrator and a Protostrata and a Panhypersebastos. These new court titles were the highest ranks in the administration and commanded both respect and financial resources. By Manuel's day, they had developed into a formal system which was organised by how closely related to the emperor you were. So Sebastocratores were the brothers and uncles of the Vasilevs, then on down to brothers-in-law, nephews and cousins, before reaching the Sebastoi more distant relatives, or even honorary members of the imperial family. The leading men of this clan would now dominate the ranks of provincial governors and military commanders. Some would also serve in the palace itself. Of course, there were still regular bureaucratic positions available to non-family members, and a truly outstanding soldier could still rise up, but in general... Court titles and positions of authority were now reserved for the family of the emperor. Alexius had seven children who lived to adulthood. John, as you know, had eight. George Palaiologos had four. Anna Comnini had four children, and so on. As you can imagine, this left Manuel with a huge number of relatives, all demanding their place amongst the highest ranks. Not only did he have to find money and jobs for all these people, but he also got involved in arranging their marriages. He may not have attended to that personally, but the imperial family now maintained a policy of restricting access to their ranks. If they allowed everyone to marry anybody they fancied, it would bring all sorts of outsiders into the inner circle and inevitably leave some important individuals with no partner. So instead, marriages were carefully planned to avoid too much incest while keeping power within this growing aristocracy. Of Manuel's nephews and nieces, two married within the extended Comnenian clan, while seven, yes seven others, married people from the Dukas side of the equation. Other imperial marriages we hear of involve other notable families, Ankelos, Varianios, Contostephanos, and Taranites, all descending from men who'd served in the armies of Alexius or John. Though some new blood did enter the system, we also hear of occasions when Manuel slapped down those attempting to gain access to his house. An imperial secretary tried to wed a woman of the Varianios clan without the emperor's approval and felt his wrath, while another had his nose slit after he was found trying to seduce above his station. This might seem an extreme reaction to the love affairs that inevitably went on, but historian Paul Magdaleno believes Manuel was sensitive to factions forming against him. If he allowed ambitious officials access to his family, then reservoirs of opposition might develop. Manuel was no longer the detached figure that, say, Basil II had been. Basil could run his empire through eunuch ministers who would usher family members out of the way. Manuel, by contrast, was the head of an ever-growing aristocratic coalition who dominated the organs of the Byzantine state. This demanded a vigilant watch over the coalition itself, as well as those gaining entrance to it. From inside, the threats are obvious. A man like Andronicus was an emperor-in-waiting, Not only did he look and sound the part, but he had the same relatives and same interests as Manuel himself. So there were plenty of family members who thought, hmm, if Andronicus were to take over, I would be in a better position, and none of the things I care about would fundamentally change. The dangers from outside might seem less obvious, but this new aristocracy were, well, drinking all the champagne. Men from the church and the bureaucracy had often risen high in Byzantium, gaining great wealth and power through their competence or their personal relationship with the emperor. Now their path was blocked by the endless stream of imperial relatives who were awarded high positions without needing to do anything to earn it. I mentioned last week that Manuel's relationship with the church was difficult during the first half of his reign and that it was an imperial official Theodore Stipiotes, who was leading some sort of coup against him. In both cases, resentments were building against the dominance of the new aristocracy. Emperors of the past had often lent on eunuchs to help them govern, men who owed their position entirely to the favour of the Vasilefs, and who could never usurp them. But eunuchs were out of fashion with the Komnenoi. So Manuel found a new constituency of outsiders that he could lean on. The Latins. As I talked about two episodes ago, Manuel was very fond of the Latin soldiers in his father's army camps. He admired their bold style of fighting and their esprit de corps, sealed with oaths of loyalty to their commander. Manuel took many such knights into his personal service over the course of his life. And this admiration for Westerners began to express itself in other appointments too. Obviously, he needed Latin interpreters and ambassadors to deal with all the courts of Europe and Outremere. And this meant developing close relationships with men who were being entrusted with highly sensitive missions. These men often came from pro-Byzantine parties in their native states. I've mentioned a group of Norman exiles who lived at Constantinople who Manoel hoped to use against Sicily. There were also several men from Genoa and Pisa who he worked closely with, especially when negotiating foreign marriages. There were also local Latins who he got on with as well. The abbot of a Latin church at Adrianople became familiar with Manoel, as did the prior of the Hospitaller house in Constantinople itself. Closest of all was Hugo Eteriano, an ecclesiastical expert who would end up advising the emperor to change aspects of orthodox doctrine to bring them closer to western thinking, but we'll get to that in the narrative. Manuel also extended a practice, which began under Alexius, of granting foreign troops parcels of land which they could collect taxes from. This practice, known to us as Pronoia, was a way of simplifying the tax process in order to guarantee a stable income for a group of soldiers. It had similarities to the feudalism of Western Europe, since these troops would now be able to march around their new lands collecting taxes directly from their peasant farmers, but the key difference was that this was a grant with a time limit – and the taxes being collected were still calculated by the state, and not based on the whims of a feudal lord. This practice was in many ways more efficient than collecting taxation centrally and redistributing it, but of course the potential for corruption was there, and Coniates, for one did not like it at all, seeing something inherently wrong in turning native farmers into the serfs of barbarian soldiers. Given the large numbers of Italian merchants in Constantinople, the endless trickle of pilgrims, and the growing number of foreign troops, it's easy to see a sort of Latin lobby developing at Manuel's court. Nothing official, of course, but just a growing sense that Latin needs were a major imperial concern. This, too, was causing resentment in some quarters. Manuel remained keen to be on the best terms possible, with all the Christian states he had to deal with. During his long reign, he sent eight Comnenian princesses off to marry foreign rulers, an unprecedented number and a policy which was not popular with the families of the girls involved. But Manuel was determined to have a presence at as many courts as possible, reminding the Christian kings who surrounded Byzantium that they were all on the same side and no crusade should be dispatched in this direction. And this certainly worked during his lifetime. Manuel gets a better press in Latin sources than any other emperor of this era. On that theme, historian Paul Magdaleno makes a fascinating point about Manuel's choice of governors in certain regions. Obviously, the emperor's relatives expected to be given senior military commands and governorships, but they didn't always get them. And yet, in certain key regions... Manuel always seems to have sent a close-blood relative. These posts included Dyrrhachium, Trebizond, Cilicia and Cyprus. As in, places where the governor would be communicating directly with neighbouring states. Magdaleno suggests that not only did Manuel want trusted men in these roles, but they needed to be royal in order to talk as equals to the rulers of those neighbouring states. Latin polities were largely run by royal families, whose knights would serve for periods of time under oaths of loyalty. Manuel seems to have been mirroring this approach in the way he ran his realm, to make Byzantine behaviour more sympathetic and understandable. This could explain why Andronicus was allowed two attempts at governing Cilicia, despite being of dubious loyalty and competence. As the emperor's cousin and the grandson of Alexius, Andronicus was at least impeccably royal, forcing the rulers of Antioch to treat him with the respect that such a position demanded. There were many tensions inherent in the system Manoel was operating Bringing family members into the regime had strengthened it initially, but now threatened to weaken it. A sense of entitlement was developing amongst those related to the emperor, and as the number of people with a connection to the throne expanded, it increased the opportunities for interest groups to develop within the aristocracy itself. Those outside the system, churchmen, bureaucrats and Latins, might also feel resentful of the opportunities denied them and the respect that worthless imperial relatives demanded. Anti-Latin feelings were also being stoked, as we'll talk about in our next episode. Still, it's worth saying that none of this was entirely new. Factions and resentments exist in every state that's ever existed. And the old court system in Byzantium was not a strict meritocracy that kept everyone happy. As you know, powerful ministers were always the source of jealousy, and magnates and princes were often involved in coups and conspiracies. This new Komnenian regime has attracted a lot of scholarly attention for two reasons. One, because we know more about it than the old system, thanks to the attention paid by historians to all the emperor's relatives and two, because we're heading for the sack of Constantinople in 1204 AD. It's hard not to work backwards from that terrible event and look for weaknesses in the system. Which is exactly what our historian Choniates did at the time. But Byzantium had nearly fallen apart before, under the old system, several times, so there's no real need to damn the Komnenian way of doing things. It was a regime that needed careful management as most regimes do. Hopefully, by outlining the way the system functioned and the potential problems it created, you'll have a better understanding of the narrative going forward. Next time will be the last of these end-of-the-century-style episodes, where we'll take a look around Manowheel's Constantinople. We'll glance at the palace and his building projects, but our main focus will be the Italian trading communities along the Golden Horn. We'll examine their prosperity and how their wealth began causing problems for the people and the government of the city.